I wanted to just uh, introduce this a little bit, and then um, so it'll be a little bit different than David's study where he takes us into a couple verses and unpacks it for months. I'm going to continue somewhat of our last study together where we just want to come up and look very broadly and um, really look at this glorious sweep of, as our Lord said, my Father and I are working to this very day. And I think we'll see a little bit this morning of just what that continuing work is. And um, I thought about this when David was talking about Cyrus, and we'll touch on that. But first, I'd like to just start, and I've tried to put everything in your papers so that you're not necessarily um, trying to chase down the passage in the scriptures in the Bible. It's I put all the bibliography. So your last two pages are a lot of the verses that we're going to touch on here shortly. But when I thought about this study, I just couldn't, I go to Colossians 1 so often, and I do that, um, as I think you'll see this morning, because it is just such a magnificent, broad sweep of what God is doing. And um, I thought I would just read that with as minimal commentary as possible for me. Um, But I will draw your attention to just a few things as I read it, and it's on your paper as well as most certainly in your wonderful Bible. But let me just read Colossians 1, 3 through 23, actually, and just listen to the breadth of what is stirring in Paul's heart when he writes this salutation. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, for those that see something called modalism where there's really only one God and sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, this first few words kind of blows that right out of the water, I think. There is truly a triune God, and it is the most glorious truth because you just won't be able to make a bit of sense out of the scriptures if you don't understand that our triune God consists of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they all are doing glorious work in perfect harmony with one another. That is so key to understand. If you don't grasp that, you begin to take apart the scriptures and you begin to compartmentalize them and you'll make a mess out of what work the triune God is doing in the building of their kingdom. So keep that in mind as you do your studies. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. This beautiful picture of who we are, what we should be, and why we're still here. Because, here's important transition, the hope laid up for you in heaven When this world encroaches, 
Set your mind on things that are above, but always remember the Lord's prayer for us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on where? Earth Earth as it is in heaven. So look to heaven when this world encroaches because that's going to change. And that is the hope that Paul and the Holy Spirit are providing in such a beautiful way. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. How how horribly have we taken this glorious word of truth from from Genesis to Revelation and reduced it to just come and do this or just come and do that. When Paul makes it clear that it was the, the word of God in its entirety in which you were taught, that is the gospel. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we had not ceased to pray for you, asking prayer for every loved one you have, every person you interact with. This is the perfect prayer that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual understanding, so as to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The spiritual becomes visible in your life for those that you are witnessing to and strengthening within the church, right? That's how Christ becomes visible in us. fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, his choice, who has qualified you. Boy, what a flip that is of so much of what is taught today. He qualified us based on all of our good works, all of our goodness, all of our righteousness, none of that. Matter of fact, it is the knowledge of that that brings us to our need for Christ. It is the mean and the work they've done in us to qualify us. His choice qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And one of the most magnificent passages, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, picked you up and dropped you into what? The kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have Redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins because the atonement was made through him.
And now we begin to move to this broad view that Paul gives us. He, now that we've settled what Christ has done, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now think about the implications of this, please. When you study your Bible and all that is in your Bible, all the wickedness, all the wicked people, the fallen angels, Satan, all of it. Think about the implications of that when you read a passage like this. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There's a purpose in the wickedness that unfolds in the heart of man all the way back to Cain. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Very comforting. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that is so key. Think of it this way. The first Adam failed miserably. He received the commandments to rule over all this creation, didn't he? And he chose to pursue a lie. But did that sneak up on God? Was that outside of his decrees? Where did Satan come from? Where did his fallen mind and efforts come from? He was right there. Or was it so that the fall of the first Adam, and every Adam from him could reveal the glory of the second Adam to their praise and to their glory. You have to wrestle that with that when you begin at Genesis 1, because as we're going to see today, hopefully, there is so much that was already decreed from before the foundation of the world. And it's now just unfolding to this very day. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So key, because that's where we're headed. All things will be reconciled to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And it'll be that be reconciled to peace in eternity or the sheer terror, terror of being in eternity apart from any goodness of the God who died to redeem us. And here we come. Paul says, in you, church, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Do we think of ourselves that way? <laughs> I know as a Catholic, I certainly didn't. 
We were the special people. The scripture says you, Andy Mayfield, were alienated and hostile in your mind doing evil deeds because everything I did in my unregenerate was to be God, to be glorified, to do the good works that would make me so much better, all of which is an affront to Jesus Christ and the reason for his cross. And yet, despite all that, he says in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. How can this be? Holy and blameless. You think of that, brother? <laughs> How does that happen? Only by the grace of God. There is no other way that we can be holy and blameless. Because my list of guilty, 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 which the accuser will make very clear and does, right, won't hold water for a second in that courtroom of God. So you see how everything for the believer points the heart to Christ and not on what we've accomplished present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a glorious day that will be. If indeed you continue, and here's the warning. Here's the warning. If indeed you continue, the perseverance of the saints, right? The scalpel that the Father is using to prune. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all the creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The gospel has gone out. We see it in the seasons. We see it all over the creation. And it should cause us to pause and ask one simple question. How can there not be a creator? And who is that creator? And God, make sure that if that is sought, you will find it right in Genesis 1-1. Just open the book and start reading it. There's your creator. In this kind of grand sweep, there is a number of things that we can see. I just pulled some of them in terms of bringing this spiritual to physical decreed in the secrets of God to revealed. Just a, just a few of them. The virgin or the visible birth of the creation, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, there it is, God created. The visible birth of Israel in Genesis 12-2, where he says, I will make you a great nation. I will give birth actually to multiple nations, but it will be through you. The visible birth of the incarnate Son we see in John 1 and 2 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Fascinating, isn't it? The Lagos, the Lagos, the Lagos. How precious should your Bibles be? How precious should the Bible be to the church? Uh, 
And when we see the visible church try to take the Bible and rip this out and rip that out and rewrite that, let's think about verse 14 of John 1. (laughs) And the Word became flesh. Look at Christ when you run across passages that just say, no way. That's not the God I worship. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. What a glorious truth that must have been for John to write. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, overcome by his own experience. Can you imagine? Writing divinely inspired word of God that God will use forever and ever through your very own personal experience as John. The bring some thunder and lightning down, wipe them all out. (laughs) And as the one who was always thought of as love. I know sanctification is a long process, but look at John and then look at John. It's beautiful. The visible birth of the church we see in Acts 2.4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues on the Spirit that gave them utterance. And I think of Revelations 14.6 proclaiming the eternal gospel was the angel to every tongue, nation, tribe, language, so that everybody could hear the gospel. And everyone who rejected it would be without excuse, ultimately, angel in the air proclaiming the gospel for every tongue and tribe to hear. How thorough is our God when he says you are without excuse. Then we see the ushering in and the visible birth of this new age where righteousness will rule in Revelation 26, which we've been pointing to a lot in David's study, Revelation 26, blessed And holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him. I don't know about you, but when I think about all the desire I have in my heart to serve the Lord. And I look at my life and I see how many ways I fail. And yet I look at this passage and I say, thanks be to God. I'm sure that it's part of that tear that he wipes away, isn't it? And then we see this glorious new heavens and new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. Just beautiful, just a little list of things that came to pass. So a big part of this study, when David was talking about the decrees of God, I, I thought immediately about Deuteronomy 29, 29 where we read, and this isn't, this is the one that is not in your study, but you all know very well. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those are the decreed will of of God that has not yet been revealed. 
He's decreed them. They're in his secret wisdom. We don't know. Look what he says. And of course, this is on the heels of the blessings and the curses, right? He says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So he's decreed and he's revealed. And in some cases over time, he's decreed and revealed. He's decreed and revealed partially. The Messiah, he'll come from Bethlehem, he'll this, be that. Right? The time of the end, we know there's a time of the end, but we don't know when the time is. So he has partially, he has decreed it and he has partially revealed and foreshadowed it the way all that prophecy works, right? The danger is we, we take pieces of that or we take all of that and we take it into its pieces and when you take it into its pieces, you are at great risk of being on the verge of manipulating it by kind of inserting into it what you already think. So it's very helpful to take the grand view of Scripture and orient your thinking into that. And here's a passage that David has touched on. He asks, why did the kings obey? Look at Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. And you'll have to look in your Bible. But it is a fascinating passage that answers precisely the question that David was asking. Three kings, right? He says in Isaiah 45, 1 through 7, when we think about why did these kings obey? Why did they decree what went against them, right? <laughs> Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to who? Cyrus, there he is. Now, who was Cyrus? Is he a good guy? We have no idea. The, maybe go study the French Revolution. You might see a little bit of Cyrus, right? Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron, he says to Cyrus, a rank pagan king. And I will give you treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord. That's why he wrote it down and decreed it. Call this what you want, but I am pretty sure it was a pretty powerful experience for Cyrus. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name, Cyrus, for the sake of my servant Jacob the object of his affection. And Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. There you go. He didn't have a clue why he was doing what he was doing. He just knew he had to do it. 
that is a sovereign God, isn't it? That is the same God who is working in the midst of everything going on right now in this crazy world we're living in. Just look at what he says. It's amazing. Though you do not know me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. And do you see how he uses wicked, evil people to accomplish his purposes, to be glorified? You see how he uses Romans 8.28. For God uses all things. All things. Not that they're good things. All things together for good. For who? Those that love him. And in this case, that beautiful remnant within Israel. Because don't ever lose sight of the fact that the remnant within Israel went right into Babylon with Israel. Right. So wherever this mess is going, the remnant, the believer, the believing church is going, in many cases, right in there with the rest of the world. For what purpose? So that they will know that he is God. Go study the life of any martyr. You'll see what he's talking about. Sure. Uh, I believe that they are absolutely still here, and uh, they are were rampant and concentrated during the time of Christ's life, as the best biblical testimony to that. But yes, they are going to bring about precisely what God has decreed under the perfect will of God and their submission to him. Right? Just study the angels. Study the fallen angels when they encountered Christ. What have you to do with us, Jesus? It's not the time. Can we go to the swines? Interesting. Did you notice what the swines did? Destroyed themselves. Do you look around this world and see human beings just destroying themselves? That's not to say they're necessarily possessed, but the spirit of this age is absolutely shaped by that realm, which Paul speaks to, yeah? faculties God has given us has caused us much harm because we chose our will and not God's will. And anybody who is animals know they're pretty instinctive, like sometimes to a fault, right? So just a very interesting passage there. And it's interesting where he winds that up in verse 7 from Isaiah 45. I form light and create darkness. So there you go, right? I make well-being and create what? 
There's a God that's often not the God of the belief. I create calamity. That's what's so deadly about this gospel of, oh, he's only love. He's only going to do good unto you. He doesn't really care about your sin. He just loves you. He wants you. That is not the God of the Bible. The reformers understood that when they were evangelizing out of the works-based systems of I'm good, I'm better, right? The whole class system was built off of it. Horrendous class system, right? They hung them over the wrath of God because they were hanging under the wrath of God over the precipice of hell. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And he uses every means under his creation to do so, which is most certainly the fallen realm. Right? Here's a perfect example. Cyrus was no righteous man. And he's using him to usher Israel back to build Jerusalem and the temple. As we know, the temple has such meaning in the future of God. So he's continuing to preserve that. So I want to kind of give you a picture. To, to consider looking at the scriptures as a, a bit of a tapestry. I love that. I, I, I'm sure some of you have seen the magnificent tapestries in the European museums that take up the size of that wall. And they are an intricately woven together series of major events that tell a story. And if that's not a Reasonable description of the scriptures, I don't know what is. But there are several things that kind of help us ground ourselves that you see enumerated on page two. And page three and four are just simply the bibliography that is in there so we could kind of move through some of these passages. And I just want scripture to interpret scripture for us. I just want you to let the scriptures fall on you as you piece together this, this very big picture. And I don't know how far we'll get through it, but I do know that it's all right there if you desire to go study it. But just look on page three. When we think about this eternal home, When David says, I, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So when you ask, how were the Old Testament saints saved without the cross? Through the same faith in a cross they didn't see clearly as we on this side of the cross see ever so clearly, which comes right out of Genesis 3.15. Remember what they said when they named Noah? Maybe he'll be the one. They were well aware that that one from Genesis 3.15 was coming and their faith was in that. Ours is well aware of who that 
one from Genesis 3.15, was and is and where he sits right now. Same salvation. David knew, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God and you see this eternal plan of God right there. His eternal love, the next one, from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 103, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on who? Those who fear Him. I, I, I love this reference to the reverential fear of God. Jesus prayed in the upper room what? Father, Keep them. He taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. You know how he leads us into temptation? Because he doesn't. He's not the All he has to do is let you go. Just let you go. So I just pray, Lord, keep me from myself. Just as you prayed for me in that upper room. Because if you let me go, if my heart desires something that is an affront to you, possibly the best way you can teach me how horrific that is, is to let me go and have it. Think of the Israelites. While the meat was still in their mouth, he poured out his wrath on them. Because they grumbled, because his provision just wasn't good enough. How often do we do that? Day in and day out. Why did he give us that example? Because it is an affront to him. So keep me, Lord, from myself. And David understood that. I mean, who better to write this than David? Who, when let go, Gave much cause for many who want to reject the Bible and say, that's the guy after God's own heart? Perfect example to know that the Bible is inspired by God because if man were the editor, he would never leave that stuff in there. Never. As Dr. MacArthur would say. Look at the glory of the Son from Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able, there it is, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. He had all that. Think about this. In the solitariness of God, they didn't need us at all. There was no need God had to create and unpack everything that we know about history of humanity up to this point. So you have to ask, then why, God? Because he's a God of love and family and a kingdom. And so we have the gospel in 2 Timothy 1.8 in terms of these 
tapestries that we see from before the foundation of the world. Do we think of the gospel before the foundation of the world? Therefore, do not be ashamed, 2 Timothy 1, 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Notice the sequence there. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. There's that solitariness of God to his praise and to his glory, which he gave us in Christ when? Before the ages began. That is just a fall on the floor statement. To think that the very moment God stirred your heart and called you to him in a saving way, that very moment in eternity was decreed before the foundation of the world ever being created. If that doesn't just leave us in awe of God, I don't know what does. And everything that brought that salvation about was decreed So part of this study helps see how big God is when God gets real little in our finite lives and our very messy world, right? Promise before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Everything is perfectly on God's time. The word and the word that became flesh, we've read already that beautiful passage in John 1, 1 and 14. Look down at number five. The kingdom and the saints' inheritance of it. Look at Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for who? You. Look how personal that is. From when? From the foundation of the world. I know our minds try to just think linearly. We try to put things in sequence, often from the moment we came to know the Lord. You can't, that's not the mind of Christ that we've been given. The mind of Christ sees the totality of what they're doing from when they decreed it and how it's being unfolded right to the very end, precisely the way the scriptures say it will. Right? Precisely. Then we see the glory of the Son, the love of the Father, and the gift of the elect to the Son. And it's, it's always careful to say the gift of the elect to the Son because we are not a worthy gift. Unless we are in the Son. Right? John 17, one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son 
that the Son may glorify you. See the purpose there? Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And that's the beautiful unity of this glorious work of God. We are just the undeserving beneficiaries of the greatest love between the triune God we can ever not even begin to imagine. Just think about it. The Father took sinners who deserve nothing but hell, and he took some of them to give to the Son whom the Son would die for as the perfect sacrifice. Rise to show the Father accepted and then continue to work, just as Jesus said, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to redeem those sinners from what they actually deserved in order to procure an inheritance that they provided. Eternity with that triune God. But only after we see this place fulfilled in the commandment given to Adam by the second Adam. Because he will rule perfectly. Right? So we see this glory to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look at the cross as the means of redeeming the elect. Acts 2, 22 and through 24. Men of Israel... Peter, no longer cowering to a little girl, but standing in front of the very mob of people that crucified his Lord. Peter beautifully says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, look at this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Decreed precisely as it unfolded. But there again, on one side of that cross, you see the most wicked acts of humanity you will ever know because of the entirety of the human race there was only one who never deserved that treatment and that's the one they put on the cross and we can all easily say that every one of us deserved that cross which is precisely why he went to that cross to take that cross for us Peter goes right to that to pierce the heart of some of them, <laughs> right? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, comes the other side of the cross, crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You killed him 
and you stirred up all kinds of lawless men that do it on your behalf. The mob. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then I just want to touch on these last two, and then we'll pray, and you guys can enjoy the other page. Look at the title of the Lamb, and that he would be slain in Revelations 13, 8. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book titled what? The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If you ever encounter anybody who just is confused at how that could come about, that cross thing, why would God do that to his son? Help them see the eternal plan of God in the midst of an unsavable people apart from what they have done to their praise and to their glory. And here you see the Lamb's book of life again in Revelations 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me just give you a picture. At the very end of page four in Isaiah 25, and we'll end here. where God kind of moves from the present into this future state. And I want you to see the literal and wondrous nature of this future state of the millennial reign in this glorious passage in Isaiah 25. Because these are the eternal things that have been decreed that will be revealed. Isaiah 25.1 says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. And skip down to verse 6. He just shifts and says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up this mountain and the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And that is what they will do as they transition into the eternal state. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your eternal plan. We thank you for the veracity of scripture as it teaches us page after page after page the object of your continuing work to save people for your glory and for your praise 
in eternity, forever and ever. Amen.